Let's continue with part two of our devotion on Psalm 69, a psalm for the distressed soul. A psalm for the distressed soul, Psalm 69. We noted in our last study that David is in the midst of a crisis. Uh, He is drowning in depression and oppression. He is struggling not only with physical illness, but also from enemies who seek to destroy him, the elders who have spoke against him, and his own family who has forsaken him. And so David pleads to God to rescue and restore him. And we have here in this psalm a source of comfort, a source of hope to those or for those distressed by the circumstances of this life. We've noticed David's complaint in verses 1 through 18, and we broke that down into three sections. The complaint, the condition, and the craving. Now, let's recap those sections by reading verses 1 through 18. David begins in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire. There is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongly wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So we notice here in the first part that David's crying out to God for deliverance. We then move to his conditions in verses 5 through 12. O God, it is you who knows my folly. My wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have befallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. And I am the song of the drunkards. And so we see here David's listing out his conditions, uh, his reproach, uh, the slander, the scorn of his enemies, how he's been dishonored and those around him have been dishonored. He's uh, been rejected by his family. He's a stranger to his brothers, an alien to his uh, family, to his mother's children. And it is this loss of family in particular uh, that uh, results in David's loss of identity. Now we move to verse 13 to 18 and his craving. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly, O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. And again, we see that return to his cry uh, that we saw in verses 1 through 4, but he lays out his crisis. My prayer is to you. He's expecting that God is going to answer him, not in his time, but in the acceptable time, in the time that's pleasing or favorable to God. 
And so we see David's prayer. Now, one of the things we noted as well is that this psalm uh, was quoted by Christ leading up to the events of the cross. And we made many of the connections in verses 1 through 18 and how they tie directly back to the Messiah. We'll continue to see that same theme play out here in part 2 of Psalm 69, and that's verses 19 to 36. So we, see, we begin this song for the distressed uh, with a prayer, and now we note the praise, the praise. Now, David's praise in verse 19 begins with a statement of suffering. Look at verse 19 to 21. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick, and I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, we don't even have to go too far to realize this is right being fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. But these verses here in, in David's lament continues as he builds his case against his enemies. He reminds God of his reproach, his shame, his dishonor. All of this we've seen in the previous 18 verses, and it resulted from one key event, and that was David identifying himself with the house of God. David uh, being excited uh, for the return of the ark of the covenant to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And you'll recall when uh, the ark was returning, for example, that David's wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, mocked him, derided him, because he was making a fool of himself, according to her estimation, because he was dancing before the Lord, dancing naked even before the Lord. And while certainly in our culture we might uh, question why he was naked, uh, his nakedness uh, was obviously not out of the ordinary in their culture uh, for uh, the event that was being held. And we're not going to park on that in here in our devotion, because we could go down a whole rabbit trail on that, but suffice to say, God did not condemn him. It was normal, it was normative in the culture of that day uh, as part of his celebration. His wife, however, she didn't want any parts of it. She didn't even want any parts of God when we get right down to it. And so we can see the cracks there with the family unit uh, that David is writing about here. And obviously David was all in, if you will, on the temple, building the temple. Now obviously God was not going to allow David to build the temple, but nonetheless that was his heart's desire to build a temple a place for God to dwell, a place for the ark to reside. And so his zeal for the place of worship, for the people of God to come and meet with God, is what became the source of his reproach, shame, and dishonor. He says, my adversaries are all before you. Not only have they aimed themselves at David, they first and foremost aimed themselves at God. You see, their anger with David's zeal for the temple has nothing to do with David. Their anger is ultimately with God. They don't want to worship the one true God. They don't want to submit themselves to the one true God. And indeed, if we think about you know, the idea of enemies, and we've discussed this in our studies through the book of Matthew, 
particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, the idea of, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? But we've noted that there are three types of enemies. The enemies that David is dealing with here are those who are opposed to God. And in a sense, yes, we love them in that we sacrificially seek their good. We want to see them brought to salvation. But at the same time, we hate them. Now, how can that possibly be? Because there's two different words being used for hate. Uh, the, the word used in Matthew uh, regards being hostile towards someone. We do not have the right to hate our enemies, to be hostile to them. But at the same time, we can hate them in the Hebrew sense of the word that David uses, uh, and that means to disavow. He is disavowing them. He is putting them before the Lord for judgment, not because they've opposed him, but first and foremost, they have stood against God. Again, uh, notice here he says, I, Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. Uh, this is isolation. This is rejection. And he's hurting deeply. No one would take pity on him. There was nobody there to comfort him. Uh, there was no solace. Uh, all he was given was gall for food and vinegar to drink. Drink Now, gall is a bitter, poisonous herb. Vinegar was sour wine. And, of course, this poetic expression uh, was certainly played out on the cross, as I mentioned a moment ago. So we have David's suffering. And I think it's interesting that his praise begins with suffering. But, you know, we, we can praise God with our laments as well. Now, he goes on in verse 22 to 28 and lays out his supplications as part of his praise. See, praise also involves supplication. May their table before them become a snare. When they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. And iniquity to their iniquity. And may they come into your righteousness. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, the psalmist here goes out on a tirade of imprecatory statements. He's lauding curse upon curse upon his enemies. And again, we might scratch our head and say, okay, what's going on here? What's going on here is David is following the law of God. The law lays out blessings on the obedient and cursings upon the disobedient. And he's simply praying, Lord, do in your word what you said you would do to those who oppose you. So, again, there's nothing out of the ordinary here. He's simply calling upon God to do what he said he would do in Deuteronomy 28. David calls upon God's indignation to be poured out, his burning anger to overtake them. And again, uh, he wants the consequence of God's vengeance to be such that their camp will be desolate and their tents empty. In other words, he wants his enemies to, uh, to perish. He doesn't want anything left that can stand before God. Now, the reason for such a severe act is found right here in the text. They persecute the ones you have smitten. Now, we have to take a moment and figure out what this phrase means. Uh, the most obvious meaning here is that God afflicted the psalmist, God afflicted David. In turn, his enemies used the occasion to unleash their attack upon David. Now, let's think this through. 
does God afflict his people? The answer is yes, he does. God chastens those he loves. You know, so sometimes God is going to bring difficulties into our life. He's going to smite us, if you will, uh, because of things we've done that are wrong. There are times when God will smite us to keep us from doing things that are wrong. The problem here is that these enemies of God, these people opposed to God and the worship of God, have in turn used the occasion to now launch their own attacks on David. They're trying to take advantage of what God is doing in David's life. And that's why this is such a severe penalty being supplicated for in David's praise. These evil men have presumptuously taken God's judgment into their own hands, and like a pack of wolves, they are attacking the flock. Again, in verse 27, the call for judgment is sounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Lord, give appropriate justice for those who add their wounds to your wounds. And may they not come into your righteousness. Now, the word righteousness here, it means legal righteousness. This is salvation. Let them be blotted out of the book of life, not written with the righteous. Uh, do not let them be written in the book of life. Uh, now, there are... Two different books of life. There is the book of life and there's the Lamb's book of life. Okay, uh, The book of life is a book of the living. Uh, once you're blotted out of the book of living, you're dead. Okay, uh, You cease to be alive in this earthly plane. Then there's Lamb's book of life and that is a book of people. And if your name is blotted out of the Lamb's book of life, that means that you have died uh, without salvation. So everybody's name is there in that book of life, in that Lamb's book of life. When we're talking about blotting somebody out of the Lamb's book of life, that means not only have they physically died, but now they're experiencing eternal death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. These enemies are going to be blotted out of the book of life, okay, then they're not going to be written with the righteous. We actually have both books here. They're going to experience physical death, but now they're not going to be listed with the righteous. Where are the righteous listed? They're not only in the book of life, they're also in the Lamb's book of life. That they're blotted out of the list of the righteous means that these enemies, once they experience physical death, are going to go and experience spiritual death in hell and eventually the lake of fire. This call for judgment is offensive. Uh, let's be honest here. Let's not uh, uh, treat it as anything else but offensive. He is wishing sickness, suffering, and death to his enemies. This appears to be vindictive. But we must remember that the attack is not solely on David. The attack is upon God. God himself. And God is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath and a God of judgment. And he must keep his covenant. And so David, in line with the covenant, calls for God's judgment upon his enemies uh, so that his name might be vindicated. Oh, I could never pray such a prayer. My friends, when you pray, and you know we follow the prescription found in the Lord's Prayer that begins with, Hallowed be thy name. We, you know, Lord, your name be glorified, your name be honored. Do you understand that, in essence, is imprecatory? 
Because when you're asking for God's name to be glorified or God's name to be honored, God's name to be hallowed, whatever term you want to apply there, you are ultimately asking God to judge those who do not honor his name. Now we could take that a step further. Because what does it mean to dishonor God's name or to profane his name or to blaspheme his name or to take his name in vain? It's not just the word that comes out of our mouth that when we invoke God's name in some type of curse or epithet, but rather what we're talking about is even, as we've learned in our study of Matthew, not keeping our word, not keeping our vows, not keeping our oaths. When we do that, we dishonor God's name. So we need to be very careful in calling for God's judgment. Verse 29 to 36, the praise ends with salvation. Verse 29 to 36. But I'm an affl- I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. I will pl- it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. That cry for judgment that we read in verses 22 to 28 is without arrogance. That's why David says, I am afflicted. I am humble. David is not arrogantly asking for their demise. He is praying this out of complete humility. He's in pain. He needs God to lift him up, for God to secure him uh, with deliverance. And when God does, he will praise his name. He will magnify, that is, he will make God's reputation be known through public praise. And David says that this worship will be more pleasing than than all the animal sacrifices he could make. Now certainly God was glorified in their sacrifices. Uh, The intention here is not to deny the sacrificial system. But David is alluding to the importance of the attitude. Listen, you can make all the sacrifices in the world you want, but if your attitude isn't right, if you don't have a desire to praise God in your heart, it doesn't matter what action you do. The heart attitude has to be right. Now, when God sets the psalmist on high, it'll be a witness to the humble around him, and they will rejoice. They will seek God, and they will live. And the reason for this is because God hears the needy and does not despise the prisoners. The word prisoner here is a metaphor for those who are experiencing punishment from God. They'll be released as they seek God. In these verses, there is a decided shift in the tone of David's psalm. The crisis has uh, been on his mind, but suddenly he shifts to worship. He shifts to witness. Hope has broken in. And of course, we see many strong prophetic themes here that point to Christ as well. You know, we're reminded that the bitterness of our Lord's suffering is represented here. It's predicted here. But let us also not forget, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The psalmist closes his psalm. With victory, all creation, the seas and everything that is in them, shouts in worship and gladness. Why? Because God will save Zion. He will deliver Israel. He'll build the cities of Judah. The cities of Israel will be possessed by the descendants 
of the Israelites, the seed of God's people, his servants, they will inherit the land. Their posterity will go on, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. God promised Abraham, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, Genesis seventeen eight. And so David claims that promise as he closes his praise. God, you promised this, I believe this, and I look forward to that day of completion. And to that he praises God, or for that he praises God. You know, my friends, as we close this psalm, and we consider again that this is a song for the disturbed soul, or the distressed soul, we can't help but think that our prayers in our distress need to become praise. There's nothing wrong with lamenting to God. There's nothing wrong for crying out to God and, and bringing our needs to Him, making Him the focus. There's nothing wrong with even the imprecatory nature of, Lord, give them what they deserve. Lord, uh, you know, again, you're not taking the hostility upon yourself. You're giving God the responsibility to take vengeance. But, friends, at a point you must shift gears you must shift from praying to praising. Again, you can still be supplicating God while you're praising. You can still be laying out your uh, uh, needs and your wants and your desires and your issues. But you have to begin to give God the glory. Lord, this is who you are. This is what you're doing. This is what you've done. And I know you're going to do it. You have to not fight God. You have to let God... If you're going to pray to God to, to deal with this, then you have to step back and let God do it. And the best way you can do that is by praise. Because prayer, listen, prayer is, is you saying, Lord, I need your help. But praise is also saying, Lord, I'm going to let you help. So I'm going to sit back and I'm going to praise you for the answer to prayer, even though the answer hasn't come yet, but I'm going to give you the praise for it because I know it will. And so, friends, if you're distressed, if you're oppressed, if you're dealing with some kind of calamity, if you're dealing with some kind of issue in your life, don't lose hope. But pray and praise God. Sounds so simplistic. And yet here it is, the very friend of God, David, who did just that, prayed and praised. Friends, I pray that in the midst of your distress, God might give you hope. And in giving you hope, he might renew your worship. We pray in these, let's pray for these things. Father God in heaven, we pray now to that end, that Lord, you might deliver those who are distressed, those who are oppressed, those who are going through calamities and difficulties, that Father God, you would hear their prayers, you would hear them as they cry out to you, Father, that Lord, that as they lay out their supplications, you might uh, hear them turn not, not, and not turn a deaf ear, but that, Lord, you would wrap them in your arms, help them to know your grace and your strength and your mercy that are new every day. We pray that, Father, you would encourage them and comfort them and strengthen them. And in so doing, Father, they will turn and give you praise. They will lift you up. They will extol you. They will, give mad, they will ascribe majesty to you. They'll spread abroad your greatness of who you are and what you have done. And in doing so, Father, I pray that you might give them hope. And Lord, we commit them, we commit this psalm to you. In your son's precious name, amen.